Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Uh, a special thanks to you all for having me back here, and uh, an extremely special thanks to Don, whose kindness is obvious. He used the word fellowship. That's a general word. Uh, everybody knows what it means, but, you know, how would you define it? If each of you were given a slip of paper and say, fellowship is, how would you finish it? I heard uh, a marvelous definition of the word from an old friend of mine by the name of Dewberry, uh, Dupree Westbury down in uh, South Carolina. He has a thing called fellowship by the sea. Once a year. It's in about its, I don't know, 18th, 19th year now anyway. And he told this story the first year and it has become a tradition. He opens up Fellowship by the Sea with this. There was a young three-piece suited junior executive who decided in his late 30s to just quit and go out in the country and raise pigs. Well, he had bought him a little farm, so out he went. He bought a sow, put her in the pigsty. And the first morning, he woke up and jumped out of bed, looked down at pigsty, and went, no pigs. Second morning, no pigs, no pigs, no pigs. And he began to express concern around the neighborhood. One of the old farmers said, that old sow ain't about to have pigs till she has fellowship with a boar. <laughs> so he heard there was an old farmer down the road, owned a boar, and he called him up, made the arrangements, and down they went. And he loads the old sow into a wheelbarrow and down to the other farm, and while she's having fellowship, he and his neighbor having a cup of coffee. Brings her back, puts her in a pigsty. Next morning, he looks out the window, no pigs. Puts her in a wheelbarrow, down they go for more fellowship. And this went on for about a month. Every day, there were no pigs. He'd load her in the wheelbarrow, and down they'd go. And one morning, he woke up, and he had a horrible fever and the flu and everything else. He couldn't even get out of bed, and he asked his wife to go to the window and see if there were any pigs out there. And she'd come back and said, well, no, honey, there are no pigs, but that old sow's out there sitting in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> but anyway. Actually, that story doesn't have anything to do with anything, but it flashed through my mind while he was up there talking. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, there is a story that just does have a little something to do with tonight's talk. Uh, before I get to it, there's another one. Two old North Carolina drunks went up in the hills to hunt one afternoon, and they were at it for about an hour and a half, and they sat down to have a drink break. And they were having a couple of slugs of white lightning. One of them spots a hang glider silently swooping through the sky. He grabbed his rifle, bing! And that fella came down like a sack. And his buddy said, what kind of a bird was that? Well, he says, I don't know, but I sure he made him drop that fella he was carrying off. But as, as many of you know, in AA circles, there is a custom in some areas, I think down in Texas, maybe you all do it here, I don't know. They don't just say, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. They say, my name is so-and-so and I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a mood-altering drug since. And then they give what they call their dry date. And one night, this great big fellow, Lord, he was about 19 feet tall. He weighed 812 pounds. On the left side. He, he was big. He got up, he said, my name is Tex. 
And I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a mood-altering drug since September 4th, 1971. And one of his buddies, just sitting right out there at the meeting, stood up. He said, Tex, I saw you drunk the day before yesterday. He said, that's right, but it wasn't necessary. <laughs> well... We come to a phenomenon that we're all familiar with, the relapse, and it goes by many names, slip, road test, further research. What it means is that someone who has had some sobriety returns to drinking. And no matter what our other feelings are, usually there is a profound sadness that comes over when we hear that. And obviously for good reason. This is a terminal disease, and it illustrates the insanity that is referred to in step two. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Bill Wilson explained what he meant by the insanity of the alcoholic. Now, as many of you know, when, when the second step is discussed at a lot of meetings, people talk about the nutty things they do when they were drunk. They say, now that has to be insane. That isn't what he meant at all. Ladies and gentlemen, non-alcoholics do crazy things when they're drugged. The insanity that he referred to has to do with an alcoholic who is physically sober and picks up the first drink of the next series of drinks. That is totally irrational behavior with at least a physically clear mind to begin to consume a drug that ultimately results in death. That's the insanity that he was referring to. And it is a completely irrational act. The tragedy of relapse is that some make it back and some do not. Please listen to this. I heard it from a friend of mine in Atlanta some years ago. He was talking to a group of people, recovered alcoholics, he said, now, there are a lot of youngsters there. He said, I'm sober 17 years. Now, let's take 15 years as a cutoff. Anybody sober over 15 years, let's call them the old timers. And those of you who are under two years, let's call you newcomers. <coughs> he said, my chances of staying sober are much, much better than yours. And he said, that's kind of reasonable to assume. He said, I've had 17 years of going to meetings, building up AA strength. You're brand new. You're perhaps a little shaky yet. Then he said this, now let's both have a slip. Your chances of coming back are a whole lot better than mine. To whom much has been given, much will be asked. I heard a war story. of uh, It came from a woman in the program. Uh, I was in a Midwestern city, and she came up to me after talk one night and said, Please pray for my father. He had a relapse. Thirty-three years sober, and he picked up a drink. Now, you and I know this. The baffling fact of alcoholism is that it progresses whether you drink or not. When an alcoholic picks up a drink after a prolonged stretch of sobriety, he does not pick up where he left off. Within a very short time, he picks up where he would have been if he had been drinking all that time. 
I know one case of a man who was sober 22 years, and he wasn't on guard. He had been hit with a lot of family tragedies, and he was on his way to a family funeral. He was flying, I think, to Florida. And the flight attendant came down and said, uh, what do you have? He said, a martini. And they buried him a year later. He didn't know what hit him. And this is the thing, I think, that should keep in the mind of every alcoholic a very salutary fear that a drink will ultimately kill him. When you lose that fear, God knows what you'll do. Now, there are four enemies of sobriety. Youth, health, wealth, and brains. And the most dangerous is brains. A lot of times the young, they don't think these thoughts specifically, but it's there. I'm young, I'm strong, I can bounce back. For those who are young and healthy, the same thing. They can afford to go to detox after detox or treatment center after treatment center. They do have health. Wealth enables you to do that. The most dangerous thing of all is this thing up here. What happens after you're sober and you pick up a drink? You are plunged immediately back to the old way. You begin immediately to live a lie because you usually sneak that first drink for starters. You know the worst thing that can happen to somebody on a relapse? Is to pick up a drink and not get drunk because the next day this thing starts to work. Holy smoke, I may not be an alcoholic. I didn't get drunk. I, I wasn't compelled to drink 89 more drinks. And so the next day he has a drink or two and doesn't get drunk. And again, that's the most horrible thing that can happen to an alcoholic. Because as time goes by, and it's usually very brief, the next day he'll handle four or five, and maybe a week or two later, three-fifths handles him. Many people are ashamed to come back. Now, you know, here's something you hear from, from recovered alcoholics. Some poor fellow has a relapse and he comes back. He says, I'm so ashamed. I let you all down. And he's told, you didn't let us down. You let yourself down. Why do we make that either or? We do let ourselves down and we do let the group down. The whole notion of sobriety, in union there is strength. And when one link of the chain becomes weak, it does something to everybody else. But anyway, why do people have relapse? I guess ultimately God knows and he won't tell. We must never, ever forget that it is a disease. The AMN defined that as a disease in 1967. And when you wish to appeal to people who think it's a moral issue instead, refer to it as Jelinek Syndrome. That's the official name of the thing. Dr. Jelinek drew the chart of the syndrome. AA from the beginning has warned its sons and daughters, be careful of getting overtired and over hungry. Please pay attention to these things. They're valid. They're very valid. When you get into a state of exhaustion or hunger, that cellular craving for a drink may take over and overpower the desire to stay sober. It is something I think that sober alcoholics must never forget. There is a physical side to this disease. It is a biochemical addiction to a drug. But this thing is what causes most of the problems. And usually, it begins with stinking thinking. 
Then the behavior that follows, those two are connected because the thinking manifests itself in behavior. And ultimately, for most, the drink. Now let's see that. The very first thought that can cause trouble is this whole thing we call denial. One of our former patients killed himself last Easter Sunday. It, it hit us like a like a train. I know I'm playing amateur psychiatrist, but I think I know what happened to that poor man. He was an alcoholic, and he knew it. He just didn't want to be one. He wanted to drink, but he wanted to drink without pain. And for him, that was an absolute impossibility, as it is for any alcoholic. Can't be done. But the denial, many people, they respond beautifully through treatment, but they're in that protective environment. And they get outside, many of them are drunk within a day or two. Some of them within the first year or so on. And I think that the reason is that a little teeny thing on the back burners of the brain says, maybe I'm not. Intellectually, I accept all the films, all the lectures, all the group talk and so on. My record is here and it shows certain things. But when they get healthy and they feel good and they're in command again, the little doubts begin to enter in. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm too young. Maybe I'm too smart. And they experiment. Some prove with their first relapse what they told me was right, and boom, back they come. But the longer and longer we're sober, the shame, the guilt, the remorse of a relapse is deeper and deeper, and some just don't come back. But that business of denial is, I think, the very worst enemy. Isn't that what alcoholics had to fight before they came in the first time? Denial? That whole business of not wanting to believe that this is happening to me, that I have this problem, it can do more damage than anything. And what happens with the first swallow of a relapse? You go right back into that world of dishonesty. The alcoholic not only verbalizes a lie, he lives it. He lives it. He's so used to lying that that is reactivated immediately with the first drink of a relapse. Immediately. He tries to hide the fact that he was drinking. He tries to function in such a way as to get you to believe he's not drinking when he's drinking. A good friend of mine, 12 years of sobriety, a friend of his called me to say that he had been drinking. He made no reference to it at all. He came to visit. And instead of asking him, I simply told him, I know that you've been drinking again. When was your last drink? He said yesterday, but I'm in control. I thought with those words, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. What he didn't tell me was that he had been drinking for about nine months. He would only admit what he thought that I already knew. Twelve years of AA, of meetings, of discussing the steps, all of that down the drain. Just gone. I've not heard from him. I don't know whether he's still drinking or not. But that's the tragedy of relapse, and that's the tragedy of this thing up here. Resentment. Resentment and self-pity go together. You know what happened to the man in the airplane? His self-pity was normal. He was in grief. And grief is just as valid a human emotion as joy. We don't fault him for feeling sorry for himself simply because he lost a loved one. That's normal. But it handled him instead of him handling it. 
Sentire means to feel. We have five feelers. Hearing, sight, smell, taste, and touch. <coughs> if somebody insults us, we feel bad about ourselves. Self-pity. Normal. We wake up the next day and we re-sentire. We re-feel. We re-sent. That's the process of building mountains out of molehills, and most of us have a Ph.D. in that. You know how dangerous these two things are to the alcoholic? Bill Wilson said it. Resentment and self-pity are luxuries that the alcoholic can ill afford because unless they are worked at, they usually result in a drink. Now, some resentments have resulted in the growth of AA. I don't like this group. Start another one. <laughs> That's the way AA has grown over the years. That's a kind of a constructive use of a resentment. And then this thing of impatience. We are brought into the garden and are allowed to smell the water in the well of sobriety. And we want tomorrow yesterday. We look at somebody with 30 years of sobriety, and that's what I want. I don't have 30 hours of it yet. And we become impatient with ourselves as time goes by. We're not making the progress we think we should. And then, well, how do I know it works? I'm still this, I'm still that, I'm still the other. We become impatient with progress because we become impatient with ourselves. We don't give things a chance. We just don't give AA a chance. Doc Green out of Guesthouse used to say, you don't get AA, it gets you. But you have to be there and plug away a day at a time until it does get you. Ladies and gentlemen, a blade of grass will grow a day's growth in a day's time, and we will grow a day's growth in a day's time. Don't try to make up for staying away from church all year with a 48-hour weekend retreat once a year. There's no such thing as instant spirituality. That's emotional. That's all emotional. But we want those things. How have alcoholics function when they're drinking? Self-will run riot. We, that's the way we live, emotionally. And that's the way a lot of us approach sobriety, emotionally. We want it to happen overnight, and we get impatient with things. And all is up here, but it spells itself out externally. We'll see in a minute. Frustration. Why doesn't my wife do such and such and react in this way and that way? I'm getting well, but, you know. How can we expect maybe 15 or 20 years of resentment and hostility and anger to disappear because we get well? I don't have all the support I want. Many, many women suffer that. The husband said, that's your problem, honey. I'm reading the paper. What, Al-Anon, what's that? Many women have no support from their husbands. And, and they're frustrated at that. Why can't these people see that this time it's different? The alcoholic may have broken thousands of promises on his way. The only way we can earn people's trust is to become trustworthy. And the only way to do that is to say sober today and do the same thing tomorrow. Until, like the blade of grass, we grow a day's growth in a day's time. And sometimes trustworthiness isn't earned for years. But we're very frustrated that people don't believe us this time. And that frustration can just lead to an inner turmoil, all that grinding inside. 
Then we begin to become suspicious and critical of people. We begin to listen to and pick apart the messenger instead of listening to the message. God, we know that's dynamite. That's dynamite. We begin to become critical of people. Have, have you ever met convention goers uh, who go to all kinds of AA conventions? They don't listen to the, to the message. They rate speakers. They was a little better in last year's. Uh, they was all right. Well, he wasn't as good as the last one. Or this beauty. His was a good story. Or his wasn't so much of a story. Every person in the room has only one story, his own. What do you mean it's good or bad? But we begin to do that up here. Those are danger signs. We're completely unaware of them, but they can be there. And the, the temptations to do that will be with us till we die. Distrust. What's this guy after? He actually came up and shook my hands and acted friendly. What's he want? Isn't that the way people function when they're drinking? What's he want from me? Hey, by the way, I know this is way off, but when things flash through my mind, i got to share them. You have all heard the gimmicks that, that people use to turn down a drink. Now, by the way, if there's anybody in, in the church here who is new to sobriety, and you're wondering, well, what do you do when somebody offers you a drink? If you got a pencil, write this down. It'll save your life. You say, no, thank you. God, what else? <laughs> what else? <clears throat> or, you know, you can use all kinds of the gimmicky answers, you know. Uh, a fellow told me one time I was on a plane, this woman kept saying, well, why don't you drink? Why aren't you drinking? Why don't you have a drink with me? What do you say to somebody like that? We didn't say anything, but I thought for a little while and I handed him this one. I've never used it myself, but I think it's pretty good. No thanks, because when I do, I, I usually puke all over the person beside me. If, if you really want to have fun, you know, you have to go to a cocktail party. People will be getting a little bit sloppy there. Have a drink, pal. And he said, no, thanks. Why, don't, why, why aren't you drinking? Just quietly. said, because I'm an alcoholic. Hmm? <laughs> the reaction is astounding. There's an involuntary step back. <laughs> See, they've never seen a live one before. <laughs> and, uh... But I heard one the other night that I had never heard before. If a person asks you to have a drink, you can be absolutely assured that they'll never ask you a second time if you say, no thanks, but I'll take the money. <laughs> <laughs> they'll enter the next room quicker than you can blink. And then this thing pervades it all, the dishonesty that we go into, the living of a lie I don't want people to know. And then there's such a thing as those who haven't yet had the relapse, but they go back into the old pattern of lying about anything, trivial things. And you know, after you do something eight or ten times, the eleventh is easier, automatically easier. 
to lie to the wife, to lie to the children, to lie to associates and friends and so on. That that inner dishonesty, it causes discord. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no sober alcoholic who can live a lie without pain. A lie does damage to conscience and always has its results. See, all this stuff that takes place in the mind, the stinking thinking, the uh, the thinking that that is not compatible with being sober, that results in a lot of things. The alcoholic begins to associate with those who are not real winners, the old drinking buddies. He goes into slippery places. You know, it, it's an astounding thing how a, how a human being can stick his head in the oven and discover that it's warm in there. We had a, a, a young fellow, he's, he's got about a year's sobriety, but he says he goes into the bars with his old friends and orders coke. And he says he's really tempted sometimes. Oh, God. Of course he's tempted. His two-year-old could tell him that. If you don't want to have slip, stay away from slippery places. And they told the Irishman that was ice skating on a pond and the ice cave when he went through. You know, the Irish, they don't say, you're crazy. They say things like, have you no sense? So this fellow fell through the ice and a buddy of his says, how did you come to fall through the ice? He says, I didn't come to fall through the ice. I came to skate. Argumentativeness. Have you ever heard people who challenge everything that is said at a meeting? God is good. What do you mean by that? I remember one time giving a talk up in Pittsburgh. So help me, Hannah. I gave about 20 minutes to the 12th step. But I prefaced it by saying, self-preservation is the first law of nature. And a fellow come up to me later, and he said, now I beg to differ with you. I said, fine, you can differ with anything I say. And he went on and on and on at a great rate. I was wondering if he had heard the talk. You know what he said to me at the end? He's an old-timer, and he knew Bill Wilson, and Bill said to him, and he said it with great pride. Bill once told me that my role in life was to challenge the tolerance of other AAs. He was proud of that. I'm not sure, but I don't think he had any teeth. The lack of discipline, self-discipline. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that the hardest steps in AA are six and seven, trying to get rid of our defects of character, our shortcomings, the things in us that make us selfish and unlikable and unlovable. I have found that discipline becomes more and more difficult as we get older much more difficult because the whole human spirit and the human body seeks ease. In the beginning of sobriety, there's great enthusiasm. In the beginning of sobriety, we see a great many huge things that have to go. We really do work on them and throw them out. But as time goes by, picking out the little vices and constantly working on that, when we let self-discipline go, 
Here was a fellow who in the first couple of years of his sobriety, he was out five and six nights a week. Now when you call him, he says, I'm tired. The self-discipline is just beginning to erode. It's a real danger sign. Now you've noticed this. Withdrawal. Withdrawal. You know, people begin to, hey, where's Harry? I haven't seen him for a while. Stays away from AA friends, and then the inevitable, staying away from the meetings that are his lifeline. The lifeline. It's a line that brings life to the soul of the alcoholic. And he begins to treat it almost, and sometimes, in an offhanded way. That goes along with the lack of self-discipline and everything else. Just letting things go and withdrawing, coming back. Depression. Now that's something that happens, but it is a terrible thing. And it means that so often we have to do the things that need to be done when we don't feel like it. I have heard depression defined as frozen anger. I think it's frozen self-pity. Because when you're in depression, you are aware of nothing but pain. Sheer, pure, bleak pain. So vulnerable, so vulnerable to a drink during those times. You know, the last part of step 12 says that we try to practice these principles of living right in all our affairs. This business of beginning relationships long, long, long before we are prepared to do so. If you want to start a relationship, in the name of God, get somebody outside. Because it may not do anything to you, but it's liable to destroy the other person. In treatment, we try to separate men from women. Simplest reason on earth. When romance begins, therapy ends. So try to bear in mind to stay away from deeply emotional relationships for the first 85, 86 years of your sobriety. (laughs) I I remember one time a... (coughs) A friend of mine came to a meeting and May was there. I wasn't there, but I I grew up with this fellow. And she said to him, Walter, when are you going to get married? He said, good heavens, ma'am, I've only been sober six years. (laughs) He said, I wouldn't inflict me on anybody. (laughs) And then this dishonesty, which is totally destructive, the use of other substances that are mind-altering, mood-altering, addictive. Every now and then we meet a young patient who, well, I do have an alcohol problem, but when I get out of here, I can still smoke pot. He can almost write a death certificate. People who buy over-the-counter drugs, chemicals that are addictive, and when this thing gets messed up, it is messed up. They justify it. Have you ever heard this expression from fellow alcoholics? Anything goes as long as you don't drink. I've seen death result from people who failed to see on Vic's Formula 44, 25% alcohol. In the name of God and in the name of staying alive, beware of other products outside of beverages, you know, drinkable beverages, beer, whiskey, wine, and so on, that have alcohol in them. And please beware of the horrible stinking thinking 
that other drugs are okay. They're not. There's a basic dishonesty there because we're seeking euphoria chemically. And that is the danger of all addiction. A horrible danger of all addiction. Well, there is an ultimate, and this behavior is visible. An absolute refusal to do what we know has to be done to stay sober. Some guy comes, and you know, you've, you've had the calls. Oh, please come, I'm dying. Absolutely refuses to go to meetings. Oh, please help me this time. I, you know, I'll... Has no sponsor. Just refuses. Absolutely refuses to do what the experience of a couple of million people have said must be done. Ladies and gentlemen, there are a whole lot of musts in AA. Well... You know, you could go on forever. This, this is not complete by any means. There are a whole lot of things, but I think they all overlap and they tumble into one of these headings anyway. But I, I think you know me. I'm the eternal optimist. We say to every graduating class every Monday morning, we do know that statistically some people are simply mentally and emotionally incapable of being honest. They'll relapse till they die. This is a disease that is terminal and some people will die of it. And so even though it has sounded like I'm on a moral kick here, it isn't so much that. Some things are blameworthy. When I'm free, I'm free. When I have choices and deliberately make bad ones, I've got to answer for them. But there are some people who are simply incapable of making right choices. And we absolutely have to acknowledge that. But we say to everybody, even though there is a percentage of alcoholics who must die, there is nobody in this graduating class who must have a relapse and die. Your motivation is there and the tools are there. The ball is now in your court. I tell every graduating class, as you walk out this door, we have done our best. We have given you the best that is in us. Now it's up to you. You're free and your sobriety is in your own hands with all the support that is around you. But I think you know me. I, I do have a kind of an optimistic attitude toward people. And there are some answers. There really are some answers. And I think the first is to listen very carefully to the most frightening words that Bill Wilson ever said. Be on guard against the unguarded moment. Now, my friends, that's scary. That is scary. We know that one swallow will catapult us right back. There will come times in your life when absolutely nothing stands between you and a drink except your whole AA experience that will make you instinctively say no, where if you stop to reason it out, you might not. That's the importance of going to meetings. You know, I heard as one of the best pieces of advice from an old friend of mine who was an AA member. I've heard him speak many times, and he always winds up this way. He said, you know, when I first came to AA, they told me that if I went to meet and said my prayers and didn't take a drink, I could stay sober. Now, he said, that's worked for me for 25 years. I believe I'll try it again tomorrow. He's beautiful. He really is. But there are some answers to this. There really are some means that are at our disposal for preserving this priceless jewel of sobriety that has been given us. Number one is to try to live the principles contained in the 12 Steps. That's a never-ending thing. 
And several of the things that can militate against that is the cockiness of age. The longer an alcoholic stays sober, well, I mean, theoretically I can have a relapse, but it'll never happen to me, really. You know, if a medical doctor, let's say there was an outbreak of leprosy in this area, and they got an expert in who came in and spelled out all the symptoms, told us all the precautions, now, every human being on earth suffers what is called the illusion of immunity. If I'm sitting beside you listening to this lecture on leprosy, I'm thinking, well, it might happen to you, but it ain't going to happen to me. How are you going to die? I'm not going to die of a horrible cancer that's going to eat my throat away. I'm not going to die in a flaming airplane crash. I'm not going to get beaten to death. You know how I'm going to die? Very peacefully in my sleep. Aren't you? The illusion of immunity, it's not going to happen to me. And that is the cockiness of complacency. Complacency. That's, that's one of those soul cancers that can chew us to death. Then there's the know-it-all. Ask him any question, he's got a glib answer for it. Boy, in the last quarter century of my life, I have learned to say, I don't know, thousands of times. And I think you'd better learn to say it too, because there's not a soul on earth that knows everything about all this. Not a soul. Have you ever been to a meeting and some poor guy tears in? Just had the worst day of my life. My wife ran off with my best friend. Um, my grandmother died in childbirth. <laughs> the house burned down. Somebody shot my dog. All my kids were picked up on drug charges. There's always somebody there with a glib answer. Easy does it. <laughs> I mean, that's just not enough right there. <laughs> hey, by the way, the, I missed it going down, but there's a magnificent story about resentments. One night at an AA meeting, the chairman got up and he said, Now, tonight, I'd like the subject of our discussion to be resentments. He said, How many of you here still have resentments against somebody? Every hand in the room went up except one old bird about 94 years old. He just sat there. Well, he said, Let me put it this way. How many of you in this room have no resentments? That old man stood up. The only one in the room. He said, do you honestly mean that you have no resentment whatsoever against any living human being? And the old man said, no, I don't. He said, how come? He said, I outlived the SOBs. <laughs> anyway. On living the program... Now, my friends, you have to know as well as I do that AA does not consist in what we snow each other with at meetings with our deep philosophical train of thought. AA is the way we live in between them. And that takes a great, great deal of work. One of the most magnificent pieces of literature in AA is a little pamphlet called A Member's Eye View of AA. And in it, the author says... These steps are not meant to be philosophized about. They're meant to be done. Austin Ripley at Guesthouse always gave the priest patients there a rule of thumb as to how to conduct oneself at a meeting. Don't you ever talk about anything unless you have done it yourself or are willing to. He's a very wise man.
Number two is sponsorship. Ladies and gentlemen, you must have heard me say this hundreds of times before in many different talks. Popes have confessors and presidents have cabinets. Who do I think I am that I can live life without guidance? Every spiritual writer who ever lived always demanded that we have some sort of spiritual direction, and AA insists on having a sponsor, someone who knows us intimately, someone to whom we make ourselves known, because these things happen in an insidious way. We don't know what's happening in us, but a good sponsor can spot it through the behavior that results from it. Sponsorship in many circles in AA is kind of a social thing. There's my sponsor over there. A sponsor is someone into whose hands you put your life, and if you're a sponsor, you have a moral obligation to be. I sponsor no one. I sponsor no one. I don't have the time to do it right. A good sponsor watches over the person and lets him know immediately when he's getting off center. That's his job. Everybody can carry the message. Everybody is commanded to 12th step. But everybody is not, cannot be a good sponsor. If you value yourself, if you value your sobriety, you will search for someone who will rein you in when you're getting off track and who will praise you when you're doing well. The third thing is gratitude. I've heard it said that if I am truly grateful for today's sobriety, I just paid for tomorrow's. Gratitude is not a feeling. You don't have to feel grateful. You have to be grateful. Being grateful is spelled out for us. It is called step 12. Gratitude is the golden tray on which I offer to others what God has given me. And Rip put it so magnificently. Gratitude is the hinge on which the sober life swings. Gratitude is the only coin with which you can buy God. I don't mean to be irreverent, but he's a sucker for gratitude. It's the only thing that makes little people big. And its beauty is seen in the ugliness of its opposite, ingratitude. It's the ugliest thing on earth. And if ingratitude makes us turn our faces away, what do you think it does to God? I call ingratitude the halitosis of the soul. It's the only thing that makes God turn his face away from us. And the only way I can express my gratitude is in trying to help another drunk. That's the way AA began, isn't it? I wonder if I might not get sober by trying to help somebody else get sober. And the last thing, and I've never seen this in a handbook, is prayer. The emphasis is not on receivership. Oh, God always answers prayers. We're always looking for the gimmies, what we get. Ask! and you'll receive. Asking demands the humility that acknowledges I don't have, you do have, may I have. The eleventh step says this, the alcoholic prays only for a knowledge of God's will and the power to do it. What's God's will for the alcoholic? Get sober and stay that way. And if we ask, we'll receive. We asked enough during the drinking days, didn't we? The pleading cry of an animal in pain. 
Help me, God, help me. And he did. We must never, ever, ever forget to pray for the gift of sobriety for one more day. Now, what should our attitude be toward those who have relapses? It's hard to do, I know, especially when you've done so much for a fella or a gal and she gets drunk again. It's awfully difficult to have compassion. Sometimes it's easy. But I'll tell you one thing. If I believe it's a disease, the only way I can act toward it is compassionately. Now, my compassion may have to be firm sometime. If it's a constant slipper and the things I've been doing haven't produced sobriety, But I have heard relapses announced almost happily. Hey, he's drinking again. The SOB is drunk again. I've heard that from some so-called recovered alcoholics. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the loveliest slogans in AA is one that should mean so much to every one of us. There but for the grace of God go I. We must never forget what has been said by so many AAs. I know I have another drunk left in me. I just don't know whether I have another return left in me. I heard this within the past year. If I take a drink, all my tomorrows are up for grabs. Let's never forget that it can happen to anyone. Let's never forget to have gigantic compassion for those who have a relapse and never return from it. And let us greet with great joy those who have a relapse and do return from it. Let's never forget that this is a terminal disease and relapse is a possibility, if not a probability, for every single alcoholic who is sober. It's a, it's a depressing thing, and it's a very sad thing. But the tools available that it will never happen to me are available. All I have to do is have the goodwill to pick them up. To do the things that I am supposed to do to say the prayers I am supposed to say, to accept the human guidance of a good sponsor, and to try to live this program of living as best I can. It is my prayer. Uh, You know, I've told people that uh, I started to pray for alcoholics 26 and a half years ago, and I hope to God my prayers have done more than any film I've ever made. And I will continue to pray for alcoholics till the day I die, especially for those who get sick again and again. And it might do all of us well in our night prayers every night when we thank God for this day of sobriety to pray for those who don't have it. How privileged we are to be in this marvelous field of being able to offer something to sick people that might enable them to get well. For those of you here who are alcoholics, stay well and pass it on. 
Thank you for being here tonight, and uh, I would like to leave you with these words that Gunga Dean once said to his sergeant. A bird in the hand is worth four groundhogs. I don't know what that means, but it sounds good anyway. You're beautiful, and thank you for coming, and thank you for listening to me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.